So a couple weeks ago, my wife and I were in Scotland. Great trip. I can't wait to tell you more about it. But two things uh, sort of jumped out to us when we were there. One is the uh, exorbitant amount of monuments and statues and cathedrals uh, commemorating the saints of history, from Thomas Chalmers to John Knox to David Livingston and on and on. The amounts of monuments and uh, historical uh, relics, if you will, to these great saints is incredible, particularly in Edinburgh and in, in Glasgow. But the second thing was, uh, I, did some, I did some sort of family ancestry research before I went, and uh, there's a professor at Asbury, his name's Ben Witherington, and he and I are distant relatives, and so I met with Ben um, you know, a few, few months ago, and, and he helped me see a little bit of our uh, Witherington ancestry, and he told me at that point, there's a little town in North England on the North Sea called Witherington, England. And he had told me that there's a uh, remnant of the Widrington Castle there, and so I, I called Ben and I said, hey, how close is Widrington, England to Edinburgh? And he said, oh, it's only an hour and a half. You should go. So our last day in, in Scotland, we drove down the coast to Widrington, England. And we walked up to the property where the Widrington Castle legacy is, and there's sheep. <laughs> there's not even a brick, a stone, no relics, nothing. It's just a field. But... On this field, lining the property are 12 lime trees that they have called the apostles. I thought that was pretty cool. On our family property, I have the 12 apostles. Uh, but, But I started thinking about that. All those Christian monuments, the 12 apostle trees on our family property. And I was thinking about these passages and and here's what I want us to see. The next two weeks, we're going to look at these, these names. And today we're going to look at six of the 12 apostles. But what I want you to know is even though those apostles have trees in northern England named after them, they were normal guys with normal lives, with normal jobs, with normal families, with normal things going on. That They were called up by an extraordinary God uh, into an extraordinary calling of the kingdom, but these were ordinary guys. And then next week, we're going to look at a whole list of people in Paul's letters that there are no monuments, no cathedrals, no hospitals, no books written about. They're just really normal dudes and and women. And I want us to see that that's how God works. He takes ordinary people and means to accomplish his, his extraordinary purposes. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. The clear teaching of scripture is when we come across someone who has a compelling walk with Christ or someone who God is using to lead us to Christ, we are to imitate not their behaviors, not their applications, not their choices in life, but their faith. And so when we see these apostles, God wants us to imitate their faith. Okay, so what we're going to see from this first chapter of John is the first six disciples. Throughout scriptures, there's four lists of the disciples. The gospels have three of them and Acts has one of them. In all four lists, these six guys are named first. And all lists of the Bible are written with significant importance. These first six are written because they were the first six called. They were the first six, they're the six we know the most about. Uh, They were connected in some very strategic ways. But all the lists have these six first, which scripturally speaking means we should alert our attention to their significance. We're going to see why they 
were mentioned here in John's gospel at first. So let's, let's, let's dive in. Let's look at the context first. As you can see there in, in, the, in 35 through 39, uh, that John the Baptist is out by, in Bethany and Jordan baptizing, and he has his own disciples. John was a rabbi, and he had disciples that followed him. But John, as you know, was the forerunner. He was the one proclaiming, there is coming one who's greater than me. I can't even tie his sandals. He's so much greater than me. Two of those disciples are with John when he says, hey guys, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was directing everyone's attention to the Messiah who actually was on the earth at that moment and that day and time, Jesus of Nazareth. Two of those disciples, you can see there in verse 40, one was Andrew, and then there's one who's not named, and we'll get to that one in a second. So let's talk about Andrew first. Whenever you find Andrew in John's gospel, he is always bringing somebody to Jesus. Here, he's bringing his brother, Peter, to Christ. Second, and in John 6, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute, at the feeding of the 5,000, he's bringing the little boy who had his meager offering of five loaves and two fish, to, and Andrew says, oh, this is what we have. Uh, to, to, to work with Jesus. And, and you know the story, Jesus does feed the 5,000. And then in John 12, there's a group of Gentiles, Greeks, who wanted to meet Jesus and their conduit into the inner circle of Jesus's group was Andrew. Andrew brought the Greeks to meet Jesus. Here's what one commentator said. Gathering together the traces of character found in scripture, we have neither the writer of an epistle nor the founder of a church, nor a leading figure in the apostolic age, but simply an earnest seeker after truth, an intimate disciple of Jesus Christ, ever anxious that others should know the spring of spiritual joy and share in the blessings he so highly prized. Interestingly, Andrew never set foot in Scotland, but he is the patron saint of Scotland. I don't know how that works. But as history would tell us, He was crucified, Andrew was, not on a cross like Jesus. He asked to be crucified on a cross that was an X. And so on the Scottish flag is the cross of St. Andrew. This brother was crucified on November 30th, 60 AD, because he believed Jesus was worth dying for. Let's keep going in verse 40. I told you there's two. One of the two, who was Andrew, who was the second one? The second disciple following Jesus, as scripture elsewhere tells us and history tells us, was John himself. John never names himself in his, Bible, in his letter. He always calls himself by something uh, vague. He, he calls himself the one who Jesus loved. John was the one leaning against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. John is the one standing at the foot of the cross with Mary, whom Jesus says, Behold, your mother. John never mentions himself. And here in John 1, he doesn't mention himself, but he's the other disciple standing, listening to John the Baptist. What do we know about John? John is one of the two sons of Zebedee. We know that his father's name was Zebedee and they were fishermen. Uh, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. John is a crucial figure in the history of the church. John was exiled in the island of Patmos and outside of Paul wrote the most books of our New Testament. He has a gospel, three epistles, and the book of Revelation, John wrote. He was exiled to Patmos, but he didn't die in Patmos. He left Patmos and went to Ephesus, Smyrna, Heropolis, all these areas of Asia Minor where he died at the age of 98. 
I'll close this sermon with a story about John, so we'll come back to him. There's a third apostle that's not mentioned in this passage, but is by implication, and this is John's brother, James. The reason I want to mention James right here, he's not mentioned in this John passage, but everywhere else in scripture where James is mentioned, he is mentioned with his brother, John. They were inseparable. He never appears in any of the gospels apart from John. In fact, in Luke 5, Luke tells us that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all business partners. Two sets of brothers in the same business together as fishermen in the north, uh, near the Sea of Galilee in a town called Bethsaida, which will be significant in a second. All the lists of the disciples have James mentioned right after Peter, Andrew, and John. It is clear that James is a part of this first group of recruits. He was called a son of thunder as well. He was zealous, at times selfish, even angry. He wanted to cut off the heads and ears and uh, kill people for Jesus and, and take the kingdom by force. One commentator says this about James. What kind of people does God use? Well, he uses great leaders like Peter. He uses quiet, behind the scenes, obscure, faithful people like Andrew. And he uses brash, courageous, ambitious, zealous, sometimes loveless, insensitive, selfish people like James. Christ brought James' temper under control, bridled his tongue, directed his zeal, and taught him to seek no revenge or desire honor for himself. And God used him. Scripture tells us that James, John's brother, was killed by Herod in Acts 12. History tells us that the guard that was taking James to his execution so believed the witness of James that he himself professed Christ. And on the same day that James was beheaded, his guard was beheaded for his faith. Now, let's pick back up the passage and see the other names. Verse 41. He, Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought Peter to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now we know a lot about Peter. Scripture is full of Peter's writings. In fact, the gospel of Mark is the rendition of Peter's personal account of Jesus's life. But it's clear from here that Andrew is the one who brought Peter to Christ. His name change is significant. Jesus calls people in such a way that he will eventually make them into the person by which he calls them. Let me say that again. Peter's name change is significant because what it says to us is when Jesus calls you by name, he intends to make you into whatever he's called you to be. Namely, son and daughter of the king. Namely, a king and priest to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Friend, is, is, if Jesus has called you to himself, he will make you into what he intends you to be. As history tells us, Peter also was crucified, but because he didn't want to be crucified like his savior, he asked to be crucified upside down. Before Jesus, before Peter was crucified, tragically, he had to watch his wife also be crucified because she believed Jesus was worth dying for. Let's keep going. Verse 30, 43 and 44. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. This is where the scriptures are so fun to me. 
Okay, you know, uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, says Paul in 2 Timothy. So that means even when he just mentions the city of a disciple or his relational connection, that's significant. We should listen. And we see that with Philip. Philip is friends from the same city as Andrew and Peter. This is significant to me. They are all from Bethsaida. This is really powerful. Listen to this. Bethsaida, the home of Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and as we'll see, Nathaniel. But in John chapter 6 and in Luke 9, the miracle that we know as the feeding of the 5,000, the scriptures say took place, you can guess it, in Bethsaida. Now, this, this, this doesn't make the miracle of the bread turning to feed 5,000 or the fish turning, but it does make the congregation there less sort of like, uh, you know, Jedi mind tricks, like Jesus did some kind of met Jedi mind trick and got 20,000 people together. No, he went strategically to the city where the first six disciples lived, worked, raised their families, had their homes, had their parents, grandparents. The fact that they were able to gather 20,000 people to hear Jesus was because those guys were connected all over the city of Bethsaida. Jesus intentionally did his greatest on earth miracle there. Well, I guess the resurrection is probably the greatest on earth miracle, but, but Philip is from there. History tells us that Philip too was martyred by having his feet and thighs pierced, hung upside down to bleed to death. Why? He believed Jesus was worth dying for. The last disciple we see here is Nathaniel. And this passage tells us a lot about Nathaniel. And interestingly enough, this is all we get from scripture about him. Let's read it. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathanael's name and other lists of scripture is also Bartholomew. That was his surname. Philip found him and says to him, we found him. You know, we found the Messiah. How does Philip tell Nathanael who the Messiah is? You know, it's Joseph's son, the carpenter right down the road. Jesus of Nazareth. I I love the personal, earthy realness of that. Hey, Nathaniel, I'm serious. It's Joseph's boy, the Jesus from Nazareth, the one who made our kitchen table. He's the Messiah. He's the one the prophet spoke about. And Nathaniel's prejudicial response is, really, Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. And it it says that Jesus saw him coming and he says, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or no guile. Basically saying Nathaniel was an upstanding guy. He was serious about his faith in Yahweh. He was under a fig tree, which in that day and time was a sign of contemplation and meditation. He was waiting on the fig tree to blossom, which according to the prophets was the sign that the Messiah was coming. He was waiting on the Messiah to come. And so Philip says, hey, dude, he's here. 
And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. I saw you waiting on me. And Nathaniel's like, oh my goodness. How did you know me? How did you know that? And he said, as we'll see in a close, if you thought that was cool, wait till I show you greater things. But Nathaniel proclaims, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And as you can guess it, he too died a martyr's death. And he died a martyr's death after leading a prominent Armenian king to Christ. The king's brother hated it so much he had Nathaniel killed. Okay, so those are the six guys mentioned in this. Let me draw out a couple of applications and then return to the passage to finish it. First application. The foundational principle of Christian expansion throughout the centuries has been this, what we see here. New followers of Jesus bearing witness of him to others who in turn become disciples and repeat the process. You cannot escape that from scripture. How did the gospel expand throughout the world? Because one person told another person, hey, I found the Messiah. It's no different today. Programs are great. Podcasts are great. All these conferences we do, all that, the best witness for Christ is you telling someone else about how you found the Messiah. So today, has Jesus found you? If so, who are you taking to Jesus? I hate to be overly simplistic, but that's the clear teaching of this passage. Andrew found Jesus, went to his brother Peter, hey, you gotta come see they go to Philip, Philip, hey, you gotta come see. Philip says to Nathaniel, hey, you gotta come see. And we're here 2,000 years later because those guys did that all over the world to kings, to queens, to, to, poor, to poor, to rich, to me and you. The second application is connected to the first. All of these guys were connected in a, in a very everyday, mundane way. They were from the same city. Some of them were family members. They were from the same line of work, on and on. As I told you, even the largest gathering that Jesus ever preached to was because these guys were connected. This wasn't some random selection of guys. Jesus was clearly trying to target this area of the world. And as we said, Christian expansion happens when one follower of Jesus tells another about him. But more often than not, this happens within the simple everyday relationships that we all have. We don't have to have door-to-door evangelism or cold turkey, gear it up, go share your faith type evangelism. God's given us people that I work with, I'm in a home with, I live in a city with, I go to the bars with, I go to restaurants with, I go to Walmart with, I play in sports teams with my kids. God has given us those relationships and this passage clearly says, that's what happened with these six guys. The gospel had a peer pressure effect. It had a, uh, a contagion to it. Several years ago, you know, I've been working with college students for the last 25 years and when we moved to Kentucky, I, we started seeing a lot of students coming to Christ and their families were coming to Christ and their siblings were coming to Christ and high school sweethearts were coming to Christ with each other and all these kind of strange things. And I started noticing literally dozens of them were coming from Laurel County, Kentucky. Laurel County, Corbin and London. Can anything good come out of Laurel and Corbin? <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, I, I, I can't hear that. So I'm thinking, this is crazy. There's all these people coming to Christ from London and Corbin. So I have a friend, Josh Crawford. He's a member of this church. And uh, Josh is our campus director down at EKU. And I said, Josh, you're, you're from Corbin. 
help me understand this. I know enough about God. I know this passage here where all these guys from Bethsaida come to Christ. I know that somebody in Laurel County has been praying. And he said, Will, I've never thought about this. But for years, there's been five grandmothers who opened the yearbooks of all the middle schools and high schools, and they've been praying through those yearbooks for years. I said, I knew it. God loves to answer the prayers of his people as they pray for their city. And we're seriously, we're seeing dozens and dozens of men and women come to Christ now living in Lexington, building their homes, raising their kids because the gospel was blooming where they were planted. You know that principle, right? God intends for you to bloom right where you're planted. These guys show us that. Are you paying attention to the basic relationships around you? Are you praying that God would do powerful work in those? Family, school, neighborhood, teams, workplace. This passage particularly shows us that this first group of Jesus' disciples came that way because of their witness to each other. All right, let's finish the passage and draw out one application, one last application. Verse 50. You gotta see this. If you don't have it open, open it back up and, and put your eyes on this. Verse 50 and 51. So, you know, so Nathaniel says, how did you know that about me? How did, how did you know so much about me? Jesus says, Nathaniel, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Folks, you need to understand, Nathaniel would have made this absolute connection as an Israelite. He was not a Jacobin, he was an Israelite. Jacob had his name changed to Israel because God intended to bless his people. And in Genesis 28, Jacob saw a vision of a ladder coming down from heaven. And the clear teaching of Genesis 28 that was God intended to come down from heaven and create a way for heaven and earth to be bridged. That people from earth would go to heaven. And the angels of God are descending and ascending in a sense taking people to God. And Jesus here in the presence of this Israelite in front of the disciples says, I'm the ladder. I'm the ladder. Your wait is over, Nathaniel. I will take people to God. Heaven has opened. God has sent the ladder and I'm him. Nathaniel, I am the king of Israel. I am the son of God. I am the savior of sinners. I am greater than all kings, rulers, gods, miracles, and everything. As John the apostle would write, Jesus would say, I am. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the food. I'm the living water. I am. I am the ladder. Now, I told you that all of these disciples died brutal martyrs deaths. Why? Were they crazy? Maybe. More than anything, they were convicted. They had come to know that Jesus was indeed the latter, that he indeed was worth living and dying for. He was their king. He is their savior. He is indeed all they and their friends and their families and their city and the world needs. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for your family, for your friends? 
Now, let me close by telling you a powerful story that the, the uh, historian Eusebius told about the apostle John. So John is the one who wrote this, this section of scripture, right? And he's there watching as all these disciples join the, the, the renegade band of Jesus' disciples. John, as I mentioned, was exiled to the island of Patmos during the reign of Trajan, the Roman tyrant. And after that, he was released from exile and he went back to Ephesus where he became sort of a traveling uh, itinerant pastor for the regional area. So the area of Asia Minor there, he would travel around with his cohort and he would encourage congregations and he would encourage local ministers. And in in one situation, he was traveling to the area called Smyrna. And as he's in Smyrna, he comes across a young minister and he's encouraging him, encouraging the congregation. And during this stay there, he meets another young teenage boy who was clearly gifted with many worldly attributes and had what John thought was potential in the gospel ministry there in Smyrna. So he says to the pastor of this Smyrna church, he says, hey, I want you to take charge of this young fella. I think he's got promise. And so he connects him. The minister agrees to take charge of this young apprentice and John leaves and goes back home. As time goes on, this young man becomes distracted and allured by the world. He gets involved in the wrong crowd and actually becomes a leader of a renegade gang that was destroying the cities in and around Smyrna. He became so rebellious that he left the ministry, his family, and all those friends. A few years later, John came back to check in on the church in Smyrna. And he came to that pastor and he said, hey, where's the young man I entrusted to your care? Let me read you what Eusebius says. He's dead. John said, how did he die? He's dead to God. He turned out to be wicked and a profligate. In short, a bandit. And now, instead of the church, he's taken to that mountain over there with an armed gang of men like himself. The apostle rent his garments, groaned aloud, and beat his head. A fine guardian you are. I left our brother soul to you. However, let me have a horse immediately and someone show me the way. He galloped off from the church then and there just as he was. He's 87 years old. When he arrived at the place... He was seized by the bandits, a century group. He made no attempt to escape and asked no mercy, but shouted, this is what I've come for. Take me to your leader. For the time being, the young man waited, armed as he was. But as John approached, the young boy recognized him and filled with shame, turned to flee. But John ran after him as hard as he could, forgetting his years and calling out, Why do you run away from me, child, from your own father, unarmed and very old? Be sorry for me, child, not afraid of me. You still have hopes for life. I will account to Christ for you if need be. I will gladly suffer death as the Lord suffered death for us. To save you, I will give my own life. Stop, believe, Christ sent me. 87 years old riding on a horse, running after a renegade boy because he believed Christ was worth it. Folks, we see from this passage a Savior who's worth dying for. And when that is believed, it's contagious. 
It becomes contagious to the immediate family, to the business partners, to the city, and to the world. May God give us the grace we need to have that contagious faith as these guys did. Amen? All right, I'm going to pray, and we're going to come to the table. And as we saw John running to free this young renegade, I think he could do that because year after year, week after week, he had run to his Savior for nourishment. And so our church's belief is that we have this communion every week so that you can, every week, run back to your Savior. You can run back to the one who died for you so that you can then go out to that world and die for them and bring them to the Savior. So let me pray and ask God to cause us to run to this table so we can run after others. All right, let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful that you gave us a passage of scripture like this that shows us these men who were absolutely ordinary. Men who were found by you or found you as they walked through your providential path. Lord, I thank you that we have a Christian church in Lexington, Kentucky today because many have followed in their train. Lord, I pray that we would follow as well. Lord, now as we come to your table that you've laid out before us, and as we will say, take and eat. And as often as you do this, you said you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Lord, this morning, we ask that you would proclaim forgiveness of sins, a resurrection of the body, to us, we need it. And then, Lord, would you empower us to take that message to our world? Jesus Christ is enough. Jesus, we thank you for this meal. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.